And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic Hello, welcome to the All Senior Chapman podcast on The Athletic. We're joined today by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and our Tottenham and England writer, Jack Pitt-Brook. And coming up today, we'll discuss Jose Mourinho's efforts to lift the gloom around Spurs and the continued misery at Newcastle. And as England players gather for international duty for the last time before Euro 2020, what is the significance of Trent Alexander-Arnold's omission from the squad? Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Well, let's start the pod by talking about Tottenham. We'll start with you, Jack, on this. Jose Mourinho got some questions after the game against Villa. That, oh, did, did that feel like getting back on track after a difficult week? And I don't know about you, but watching it, it, it felt like it was same old same old Tottenham, really. They, they just managed to scrape a win this time. Yeah, certainly in the first half hour, I thought, oh my God, it's happening again. Mourinho obviously picked a very, very different team for I think quite interesting reasons but they were shambolic at the start and it really it was the kind of game where if Jack Grealish had been playing for Villa I'm sure Villa would have won Tottenham eventually ended up scoring at the right times holding off Villa I thought by the second half they did actually look pretty comfortable and it was the best they played for a few weeks whether or not it's a solution to the problems that Tottenham have been having I don't know I mean you know Tottenham have won games quite a few games in the, you know, over the last few months and every time you think they've turned a corner then you, you know, the next time they play somebody, somebody a bit better, they turn back in the other direction. I can't say with much confidence that this is, that it's all over, that everything's going to be okay. But before we bring David and Adam in, just I asked this question as well yesterday, which is in his post-match media interviews, he started talking about it's important to have players who dream. It's important to have players on the bench who dream and players in the team who dream. Now, is he just genuinely believing that or is there a message there? And by that, I mean, are we in the media constantly looking for him sending messages out through every single comment and interview or is he actually doing it? I think he actually is doing it. I think that so much of Mourinho's responses to things going wrong is to reach for a grand gesture whether that's a comment in a press conference, whether it's a slightly strange team selection, it's all to do with what can I do to provoke the players, to piss off the ones I don't like, to get the other ones on back on board, to prod them towards playing a bit better. And that's exactly what he did yesterday. He, you know, Winks wasn't in the squad, Doherty wasn't in the squad. He picked Vinicius, Tanganga, Roden, who started seven Premier League games between them before over the course of the season. 
and it worked. Like it, it did. You have to say it worked, but I do think it was it was sending a message. It was provoking a response. The, the problem is when Mourinho picks a strange team or says something uh, controversial in a press conference and it doesn't provoke the right response, that's when it's not working. Adam? Do you know what I think, though? I mean, as Jack says, he is this ultimate politician and I think it's become more pronounced um, over the last you know, three or four years than it actually it was previously. It felt previously to me that he'd always he'd pick his moments, whereas now it feels like the, the moment dictates to him far more um, and he seems to have far less control over when these interventions come in. And, and it's almost as if he just cannot help himself. Um, you know, last night, they win the game, he's vindicated, but then he still has to go. He still has to go again at these guys, many of whom he won't even see for the next 10 days anyway. I don't want to be unfair on him because they've, you know, they've won a game at Villa Park, which is not an easy thing to do this season. And they're only three points, somehow, only three points off the Champions League places in a cup final. He will think that they are in decent position and, and almost actually if you'd have said at the start of the season you'll be in the Carabao Cup final and within three points of the top four with eight or nine games to play he it's not that far off what we might have thought Tottenham would do so I think that's where it's it's very difficult to judge what, what's happening but it's clear that you know if you take the view that Premier League football clubs now whenever they make decisions over recruitment or change their manager they look at patterns they look at performances they look at trends and it's clear that things are trending the wrong way for Mourinho's Tottenham there are many clubs in worse positions than Tottenham towards the you know top half of the table with ambitions of their own and you outline how close they are to actually having a, a fairly respectable season and I'm not flipping the narrative back in a different way to how we've kind of assessed it in, in recent weeks and months. But are we judging this in a different way because it's Mourinho? If you bill yourself as the guy who wins, the guy who has a television advert saying he's a winner and he's the special one, the guy who is employed to, to win a trophy, to, to bring success, then that's kind of what comes with it. He's not gone in there and said, I'm going to go in and build an eight-year project with Tottenham. That's never been the plan. So I do think it's fair to judge him after two years looking at what can he do maybe by the end of next year. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't see at the moment evidence that they are going to win a really significant trophy. One thing I wanted to ask Jack, covering Tottenham week in, week out, do you sense that Jose's public communication, and especially after the Dinamo Zagreb game, although he, he sort of seemed to stray back into some of his old sort of discourse, but certainly in the first interview straight after the match where he, he, um, he made a point of saying my team and yesterday as well, before and after the Villa game, is he making an effort, however <laughs> easy it is to sort of see the old Jose in him still to toe a bit more of a delicate line here and try to get this project right and for it not to end in acrimony like it has in, in other jobs, even though it may still end that way in the end. Do you think he's employing different techniques, at least with his public communication? The issue after the Dinamo Zagreb game, David, is that after he said, oh, it's my team, in the press conference, 10 minutes later, he spoke in great detail about how he'd shown the players, Orsic and all the goals that he scored before, and he's done his preparation. He told them exactly what to expect. And then for whatever reason, the players weren't smart or weren't dutiful enough to follow out his instructions. And it's when I heard it, I thought, hold on a second, I've heard this before. 
And I looked it up, and after his last game as manager of Chelsea, when they lost 2-1 at Leicester City just before Christmas in 2015, in the press conference after that game, he went off on a very similar rant, saying, yeah, I show my players all the goals that Leicester have been scoring this season, and they betrayed my work. And it was almost exactly the same argument that he was making this time. I appreciate what you say, that I think on one level, Mourinho probably does want to be more collaborative, more communicative, more cooperative with the players and bring them along with him. But as you said, he cannot help himself. He cannot help himself from throwing the players under the bus when it goes wrong. And even though he will often say, oh, of course, it's my fault as well. Like, come on. Like, we all know what it looks like when a football manager is not being sincere. It's pretty obvious to me that he likes to blame the players when things go wrong. And frankly, the, the problem that he's facing is that ultimately it's in the players' hands. If the players don't want to play well for him, then they won't. He's also running out of players. Yeah. To, to you, know, you know, because if, if they go into their next game and Tanganga and Roden and uh, Vinicius don't turn up, where does he go after that? Is it Alfie Devine's turn um, to, you know, to have a bit more of a dream and, and go out onto the pitch? Like, I think that's where the problem starts. You know, if, it's okay if it's just, you know, one Deli Alley or something like that, but it's now sort of, it's a, it's, you know, he's probably got seven or eight that he's almost just cast aside now yeah. or left the impression they aren't players for him. So he doesn't have much wriggle room left in terms of to continue having that that shock impact when he when he makes his selection. The problem is, Jack, and you talk about, you know, you going back and looking at previous quotes when, when he's left other places. The problem is his previous behaviour, comments, how it's ended at other clubs in the past means, and this goes back to my, my question at, at the start, means we're constantly looking for clues and signs and where the falling out has been and what this message is and what that message is, which I genuinely don't think happens at any other club that isn't managed by him. So, you know, if, if Trent Alexander-Arnold was on the bench for Liverpool and sat in his flip-flops with goalkeeping gloves on, we wouldn't think anything of it. It'd just be funny. But because Deli Alley at Villa Park is sat next to Joe Hart with Joe Hart's goalkeeping gloves on and flip-flops, that you start people start discussing, well, is that is that saying, well, I've got more chance of coming on in goal than I have actually coming on in any other situation for Mourinho. And this is the culture that builds up around him when it doesn't go well. That's completely true, but I don't think it's unfair. Like, Mourinho's been a manager at the top level for 20 years. He's 58 years old. He's not in... I see what you mean, but I just don't think he's entitled to a clean slate with every new job that he gets. I think it's I think it's totally legitimate to look at his successes and his failures in his managerial career and to use that to you know, to provide a bit of guidance for what's going on at the moment. It's particularly when there are so many similarities between, you know, from one job to the next, like the number of parallels between what's happening now, the Manchester United, the second spot at Chelsea, to a lesser extent, Real Madrid, uh, they are there for everyone to see. So I do think it, it I can see why pe- why Mourinho and people who are, and M- Mourinho's allies sometimes do get a little bit defensive about, about precisely this point, but I don't think it's unfair for people to make those connections. There was quite an interesting interview with Brad Friedel I saw over the weekend where he made two key points about Mourinho. First, that in his view, he's inherited a squad that was 
built, nurtured, blended specifically by Maurizio Pochettino and to his style of play. Tottenham then brought in a completely different manager who inherited most of those players, needed to work with them, try and get the most out of them, and then entered a transfer market at a club where the chairman plays a key role in recruitment and Jose Mourinho hasn't necessarily been able to get the players that he would have wanted and and did get earlier in his career when he had success, when he was gifted or he was able to recruit exactly the players he wanted. Part of that, you could say, is down to the pandemic as well. And for those two reasons, Friedel said it's not fair to make judgment on Mourinho's future just yet. Even if they wanted to remove him, could they? Well, they could, of course. Of course they could. Daniel Levy has a big decision to make whenever that comes. And you know, there, Daniel Levy went into this with his eyes wide open. We know Mourinho's background. We know uh, how the, it, it tends to end. I think he thought he was getting a really good deal unless it came to having to sack Mourinho because, as we've reported, there's no break clause in the contract that expires in the summer of 2023. Uh, there have been some reports to the contrary, and I completely respect those reports, but our information is that there's no break clause. And that means for one of the highest paid managers in world football, if Daniel Levy decides to part company with him, it will take uh, a huge amount of money. Uh, we don't know the exact figure and we don't know some of the clauses within it. In the past, at clubs like Tottenham, there, there have been mechanisms by which if you finish outside of, say, the top eight, the compensation is much lower than if you are sacked and you finish inside of it. So there are nuances involved. But Jose Mourinho doesn't join a club on their terms. He joins a club on his terms. If you want to employ him, you have to agree to his contractual requirements and that means there is a very big decision coming up yes they can do away with him if they want but I don't think they will and I think that Daniel Levy will be desperate for this to succeed I completely agree with all of that from David like it Daniel Levy has invested so much money and so much credibility in the Mourinho appointment you know the man that he sacked his most popular ever manager to get in I I think the baseline assumption has to be that Mourinho will stay unless things go disastrously badly over the final straight of the season. And I think Levy is desperate to see things work out. He will wait and wait and wait and wait as long as he can, until, unless his hand is forced by the fans or any other external factor. I think he'll be desperate to keep Mourinho at the club. There are no fans in the stadium, Adam. And also, is this just about the manager at Tottenham? They've tried Pochettino, they've tried Mourinho. Hugo Lloris's interview suggested it was actually issues within the DNA of the squad and maybe not only this current squad but maybe that's permeated over the years and then you potentially have to also look to the structure around the team and those in the hierarchy. There's several things going on here one is you've got a manager who has a poor relationship with too many of his players but then then you go back to a a football club building a new stadium always presents huge challenges and it presents huge challenges when you are competing against clubs that have the financial wealth of uh, Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Liverpool to a lesser extent. Tot- Tottenham don't have, don't, haven't had that capability over the past few years. I know their, their net spend's obviously increased since Mourinho came in, but, but previously, I think what we're seeing now is also partially, and Jack's better placed than me to talk about this, but I think it's partially a result of the underinvestment that went on during the more successful times under Mauricio Pochettino. That's why you have a squad now that still has holes in it, some players who 
were looking like potential superstars at one point, like Deli Ali, Harry Winks, to a lesser extent, who would who have drifted a little bit, probably because, you know, maybe because of their own failings to a certain extent, but also because the squad wasn't built upon when the team looked strong in, you know, 2017, 2018. They didn't get the recruitment right around that time. That's because they had really difficult decisions to make around the stadium. I do sometimes wonder, and I know this is probably the biggest what if for Tottenham fans, but you know, what if they just stayed at White Hart Lane? Where would that team with Pochettino and a bit of money be behind them now? Where would that be? Because since the new stadium, their whole ideology as a club has changed. It's changed from being a club that develops young players, that that recruits young players on smart, you know, for smart deals. Um, under a vibrant manager and it's now it's now Galactico policy it's let's get a famous manager let's get Amazon Prime we've got you know NFL going on in the stadium we've got Gareth Bale Mourinho all this will bring a guarantee of success and then it's what happens if it doesn't bring a guarantee of success what what happens then what happens if you fall out of the Champions League what's the consequence of that going forward so there's far more going on here than simply Jose Mourinho I think it's been an entire step change from Daniel Levy, maybe taking the view, we're in the stadium, now we're ready to go on to that next level. I think that's a very perceptive point about modern football. Like, ultimately, everyone turns into PSG in the end. Like, every <laughs> every club that has a, that is built around the projects and young players and the style of play and all the rest of it does eventually think, oh, you know what, let's just buy some famous... Let's just appoint a, a, appoint a famous manager and buy some famous players. Uh, and I think you can also connect that to Daniel Levy's overall strategy for the club. Like, there's no, you know, there, there's no question that building up the global brand of Tottenham has been hugely important. And that's connected to off-the-field stuff as well, whether it's bringing NFL to the new stadium, whether it's the signing of Alex Morgan for the women's team or the Amazon documentary. You know, all of this has been a very big part of, of the Tottenham strategy towards building the overall value of the club, which I'm sure one day Enoch will want to sell. I wouldn't blame Daniel Levy for that change in direction. And he has been incredibly unlucky with coronavirus. If Were it not for coronavirus, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which is an incredible stadium, would have been full every single week for football matches for the last year. It would have had boxing, cricket, NFL, rugby union, rugby league, Dua Lipa, all the rest of it. And Spurs would have made far more money than they would have done at the moment. And maybe if they'd done that, they could have bought Ruben Diaz or Milan Skriniar or any of the centre-backs that Mourinho was so desperate for them to sign. So I do think that both Mourinho and especially Levy have been victims of circumstance here. And I wouldn't be too critical of Levy's strategic decisions, but at the same time, I think that this summer he's going to have to uh, really confront the possible confront what he's done with Mourinho and ask himself whether or not that was the right move. A final question on on Tottenham then, and that is the Harry Kane factor, which I think if I'm a Tottenham fan, I I would get really annoyed about constantly being brought up. But then you talk to people within the game, you talk to ex-players and and they they keep telling me that that at his age and his ability and what he has achieved on the field, at some point, medals will will have to or his his view on medals and what he wants to achieve and how decorated he wants to be will have to play a part in Tottenham's future yeah I'll just quickly start on that because Tottenham fans do really get annoyed and I spoke about it I can understand it I can completely understand it I spoke about it on television yesterday and a lot of the responses was why aren't you saying the same thing about Dominic Calvert-Lewin or Mohamed Salah or Sadio Mane the fact is it's a it's a very important question and it's a live question really over a huge player England captain, Tottenham's talisman, their best player by a mile, uh, a player 
without whom they wouldn't be competitive at all given his goals and influence and creativity he's under contract until 2024 he's 27 years old he'll be 28 in the summer Daniel Levy would want enormous money to even consider selling him there was a report in the Telegraph on Sunday by Sam Wallace saying it would need to be upwards of 120 million for Daniel Levy to even countenance it and many people think it would be far far higher than that Manchester City have had him on their top targets list for quite a while uh, among their options. Uh, I think they made an inquiry of some level for Harry Kane last summer and didn't go anywhere. There's every chance that the inquiries of any major club, no doubt who will all be looking at Harry Kane, will just be rebuffed or they may not even be lodged because they know how difficult it will be to get Harry Kane. And for a similar amount of money, you can sign a player for 20 years old, 22 years old, who's got their entire career ahead of him. Now, Kane does seem to be getting better, actually, in terms of his productivity with age, but he's also picking up more injuries. And so I do think, despite Spurs fans not liking us talk about this, it's an incredibly important conversation. And yes, I have spoken to a lot of people in football who are aware that Kane would be open to leaving Tottenham. It's not that he actively wants to leave Tottenham and and is agitating for it and doesn't like it there. He really does. Nobody's more committed than Harry Kane, but he wants to win the biggest trophies and many of them. He said that on the record and therefore he would probably, by the looks of it, need to leave Tottenham if he's going to do so. I don't think he's going to leave. No, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think he is. If I had to guess, I think he's going to stay. I think it. this is going to sound harsh on Harry Kane, and I don't mean it to be, but it's not really up to him. That's the problem. Is He's got three years left in his contract. Daniel Levy does not get pushed around on transfers. He only sells his players when he wants to, really, and for huge money. And there's a, just been a global pandemic. Back in 20, 2018, 2019, you would often get top European clubs paying 100 million plus for 28-year-old players. Griezmann, Alexis Sanchez, Higuain to Juventus, uh, Eden Hazard to Real Madrid, I think was probably the last one of those transfers. But post-COVID, I think the prospect of a top club paying that much money for a player in his late 20s, I can't honestly see it. Not when Mbappe, Haaland, João Felix are on the market. I just don't think that Harry Kane is going to have 120, 140 million pound bidders for him this summer. And that means I think he will stay because you know, I'm not saying he won't get a bid, but if he does get a bid, Levy will just say no. And I, my, my, so my guess is he'll still be a Tottenham player next season. Quite a few contacts uh, I've spoken to in the last 24 hours or so who think um, Harry Kane will be at Tottenham for the rest of his career. Now, we obviously don't know how that will pan out. The sentiment being exactly what you're expressing, Jack, that um, the chances of him leaving look really small. There's a problem if you are someone who is such as Harry Kane, Paul Pogba, to a lesser extent because of his contractual situation, uh, Mo Salah. But if you're in that 27 to 29 group and you quite fancy a transfer and, you're, you know, and your contract isn't up in the next 12 months as, as Pogba's is, you're in big trouble. Because nobody, nobody can afford to spend what your club values you. And it really leaves you with the only, the only option of running down your contracts. And if you've signed a long-term contract, then you're absolutely screwed. You know, screwed in a very gentle sense of having to stay at, you know, a club that you quite like. But I do think it's going to be a really interesting summer for, for that age group of players. And, and particularly those of them who are in contract negotiations at the moment, such as a Pogba, Kevin De Bruyne, Mo Salah... I think traditionally they either would have made made a transfer 
or use the possibility of a transfer to, to really secure a hike in wages. And actually, that, that, I, I don't think it's a believable negotiating ploy this summer. I think most clubs will look at what's going on in the market and think, you know what, they're not going to pay that for you. So you either sign this contract or you just carry on on what you are. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see over the next 12 months. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of players are entering in what I call uh, the Wilfred Zaha zone, where you might want to leave, but you're sufficiently highly valued by your club that they keep offering mm. you new contracts. And because you're your team's best player, no one else is going to sign you because you'd be too expensive. And that means you basically just end up signing a new contract and staying. And that that's how it's been for quite a few of the English Spurs players. You know, Deli Alli's mm. found himself in the same dynamic, slightly different now because he's fallen out with Mourinho. Uh, Harry Kane, I think, is actually in that same dynamic as well. And that's why I wouldn't be surprised maybe next year or or beyond if Kane does end up signing another big bumper deal at Spurs simply because he's not going to get a move anywhere else. And I'm sure you're right, Adam, that the lack of churn in players and managers because of coronavirus means that if you're a 28, 29-year-old footballer at a big club, you're, you're best stop signing whatever they offer and they put in front of you because you're not going to get your dream move. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. do uh, England and Trent Alexander-Arnold just very shortly. I just want to do a quick one uh, on Newcastle, uh, David. Uh, George Culkin wrote in The Athletic after Newcastle's defeat at Brighton on Saturday night. The end, it looked, sounded and felt like it uh, in terms of uh, in terms of Steve Bruce and his reign at the club. We did think about getting George on this morning, but that would just make us all miserable. So uh, we thought we'd just get an answer from David on whilst George said it looked, sounded and felt like the end, it actually doesn't look like it is at the moment. Yeah, it looked, sounded like the end, but isn't because Mike Ashley for now is sticking behind Steve Bruce. And that was the feeling or message we got very clearly a few weeks ago. Uh, George and Chris Wath, his Newcastle, fellow Newcastle correspondent for The Athletic, wrote about that. And I was actually being told around the time that Newcastle, Mike Ashley, is minded to stick with uh, Steve Bruce, even in the event of relegation, and that Steve Bruce would be the best possible manager to bring Newcastle back up. And the onus was on the players to get their act together. They helped create this mess and they can help Newcastle get out of it. That was the view that I was being told that Mike Ashley held. Now that view can change at any moment. And it's quite possible that if things deteriorate, in a not too dissimilar way to how Jack explained with Tottenham and Mourinho, then the owner will be forced to act sooner. But I do think with players coming back from injury after the international break, they want to give Bruce a little bit longer. There are teams in a worse position than them. They may scrape clear. Of course, the atmosphere around the club is 
poisonous, perhaps more than ever in recent times. And within the squad, you have to say, after all the Matt Ritchie and various other stories. But there are no fans in the stadium. That perhaps alleviates some of the pressure off of Mike Ashley. I think he's actually in Dubai at the moment. Despite what the fans want, or a majority of them, it seems that Bruce will get a stay of execution. Uh, I spoke to somebody well-placed in the game yesterday that thinks he would be perfect to bring Newcastle back up if they get relegated. Um, and it will be an expensive operation as well. If you know Steve Bruce is saying he's not walking away from this, well, will Mike Ashley want to sack him and pay him out and then employ a new manager and set of staff as well? It's a really messy situation and, and I hope for Newcastle fans they manage to somehow scrape clear of relegation and and build into next season. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. As it's international break this week, uh, let's talk Euro 2020, England's final camp before the tournament, Gareth Southgate's last chance to meet up with his players before beginning to select his 23-man squad for this summer's rescheduled tournament. So it, it seems the perfect time to start a new weekly feature on the pod and also on the Athletic YouTube channel. It's, it's been, anybody like to put their hand up and say that they came up with the title for this? It's uh, It's been uh, imaginatively titled On the Plane which is also slightly factually incorrect as yeah. as uh, all of England's games bar a quarter final will be in London so we we could have called it in the minibus um uh, each week we fly we'd... internally well, not at the moment. Not There aren't that many flights flying around. Uh, we'll discuss who is in contention for England's Euro 2020 squad and who could miss out. We're going to focus on Trent Alexander-Arnold, actually, uh, on today's uh, pod because he isn't in this squad. You've got more detail uh, in your column, David, on this. Yeah, we saw that Trent was left out and it was a controversial decision from Gareth Southgate. It certainly caught Liverpool by surprise. It sounds like Trent... Alexander-Arnold himself was pretty shocked and understandably disappointed about it. And we mentioned in the Monday column that Gareth Southgate didn't consult with Jurgen Klopp before or after the decision. I don't think that's particularly controversial. It was just a, a point of information to report. You may think with a, a decision of this magnitude that you would discuss it with somebody like Klopp uh, and go through it all, especially because I think he was caught by surprise with it. But Gareth Southgate has a huge amount of work on his plate, many calls to make. One of those was to Alexander-Arnold himself 
to explain it. Why would you need to go to the club manager is the FA's point of view if he's very much still in your plans for the Euros. He's in the wider group in their mind. He's just not in this squad. He'll get a break now and hopefully continue on the trajectory he's been on recently, which is improving performances and statistics and get himself back into the squad uh, for the Euros. It is a a pretty drastic about term because he seemed like one of the rising stars of the England squad and of world football, really, his productivity for Liverpool. We've seen that he's he's not had the best season. So you could say the same about a number of players that have been included in the squad. But I think it's more reflective of the strength in depth in that sort of right-back position. Gareth Southgate listed the players he's included and listed other players that came close, the likes of Matty Cash. He also mentioned Luke Ayling. And there are others who weren't even mentioned or, or seemingly considered who you could say were in with a decent shout. But yeah, that was certainly the uh, biggest surprise. I think if he finishes the season strongly with Liverpool, he's guaranteed to be in that squad for the Euros. I don't know what the other guys think. Just on, on the season he's had, it, it, he has appeared to, to dip compared to, to last season. Uh, Mark Carey uh, went deep into Alexander-Arnold's stats on, on The Athletic. Mark uh, does The Athletic's data analysis. Uh, and he concluded there's always going to be a trade-off between Alexander-Arnold's offensive and defensive capability. But digging deeper into the numbers, there is nothing that stands out to suggest he is undeserving of a place in the England setup. I mean, if I, if I was Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool, I'd be absolutely delighted at this, Adam. First of all, God, opportunity to give him two weeks off and not have to play against Albania. Yeah, and I, th- I think that is, you know, even those people, you know, those who are close to Alexander Arnold, who may be hurt by this decision, recognise that there may be a long-term win for everyone for, from, from this situation. Have a couple of weeks off, get yourself back to your best, go, you know, go again for the last few games of the season, go to the Euros and, and be a bit fresher. I do think it's a bizarre decision. I think I'm right in saying Alexander-Arnold wasn't involved either in, was it the October or November internationals? I think he was injured for one set of those. The thing I find strange is even if Southgate, he could have called Alexander-Arnold up and only played him for one of the three games, for example, or none of the three games if if he didn't want to. But I find it strange that we're talking here, I think, about probably England's most talented young player. And why wouldn't Gareth Southgate want to train with him for 10 days you know we we get so little time with these players over the course of over the course of the past year only one more training camp ahead of the euros why would you not want to use that time even if you don't want even if you don't want to play him competitively to give him a bit of a rest in these games why wouldn't you want him involved in the shape involved in set pieces involved in understanding what it is that you want to do with, with England that's what I find Bizarre. I think to give some context to this season, we did a big piece on Liverpool last week and joined the conversations for that. I think Liverpool's centre-back situation has had ramifications for all different parts of the team. But the plan at the start of the season was to give Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andrew Robertson far more rest than what they've actually been able to give them. The plan was to actually give Nico Williams a bit more a bit more game time, uh, to give uh, Timmy Cass, the new left-back, more game time as well. But because of the constantly changing uh, personnel, both in goal and at centre-back, Klopp has felt that he wanted to provide consistency where players were fit when Alexander-Arnold was fit to consistently play Alexander-Arnold and Robertson. So I think it's led to them overplaying and therefore giving the perception of being out of form when 
you know, yeah, Alexander Arnold, he's not been as good as he's been the last couple of seasons, but he's not had a disastrous season. He's had some poor games um, in a team that's malfunctioned. I'm surprised by this dropping. Um, and, it, you know, it was described to me within five minutes of it happening as an old-fashioned axing. <laughs> and I think that's what it's felt like a little bit. And I just think it's a real missed opportunity. But, I mean, I suppose from Southgate's point of view, it's whether he wants to play with a back four, whether he wants to play with a back five. Clearly, I think he sees Kyle Walker as someone who can do both jobs. So he automatically probably stays in that squad for now. He loves Kieran Trippier. You know, he's got the right right wing back, left wing back. He was captain for him a few months ago. Uh, I think there's probably the impact of the 2018 World Cup still lingers in Southgate's mind in that sense. So I think Trent has always been behind those two in Southgate's mind. And it's now a case of, well... What, what do you want to do with him? Um, maybe, maybe, Jack, you've got an idea of where Southgate sees him, if at all, in the Euros. Southgate did say, oh, maybe he will be in the squad for the Euros. But the more I think about it, the more I think, I don't think he will be. I think it just mm. wouldn't make any sense to not pick him if you were going to pick him for the Euros. This is the last meetup. This is the last meetup before the end of the season. This is this is the time to really finesse and fine-tune the team in preparation for the start of the Euros, which is only, you know, they'll have these three games and I imagine then there'll be two friendlies lined up. I think it's Romania and Hungary or Romania and Austria mm-hmm. in June before the tournament. Now, now is the time to get your team gelling. And so the idea that you could not pick him because he's playing badly, but then maybe he'll come back in in June just doesn't really seem plausible to me. I, I, look, of course, anything can happen. Maybe Reese James will get injured. Maybe Trippier will get injured. And then Alexander-Arnold would, would come back in. But my assumption right now is that Alexander-Arnold will not be in the squad. And I, I agree with Adam. I think it's mad. It's like it's like when England didn't take Ben Stokes to the 2015 Cricket World Cup because he, was, he, because he wasn't playing very well. Like it, In a sense, it doesn't matter. Like you, it, when, you, when you've got a best-of-a-generation young talent, you take them to the World Cup, regardless of whether or not they happen to be in form. So I do, I do think it is very strange. Strange, even though I do, you know, I totally accept that he's not playing very well. And I accept that he hasn't played that well for England. But that is an interesting point, though, isn't it, Jack? Because, I mean, you mentioned the cricket there, but we could throw the rugby union in at the moment, where Eddie Jones is being pilloried for picking players on reputation rather than on form. And for years with England, I suppose we've criticised, going back to the football, we've criticised a lack of strength and depth maybe or competition for places. And now there is genuine competition for places. And if if somebody who is perceived to be the best isn't in form, mm-hmm. form in inverted commas, then what do you do? I mean, there are, there are arguments pro and against, aren't there? There are. What I would say in defence of Alexander-Arnold on that point is that there's a difference between say, picking a 33-year-old on reputation because they used to be good. You know, like we all, you know, there's certainly been England players who played too long, I think, for the England team, like Wayne Rooney being one example. And then picking a brilliant young player who happens to not be playing well right now, but who on any decent, on any decent guess will be England's right back for the next 10 years unless he moves into a different position. So I think it's, I think it's mm. fairer to pick a young player who's out of form. There is a positional thing going on here, isn't there? That Southgate wants his his fullback or his wingback to be far more, I suppose, on the outside than what Trent has been for for Liverpool. And he's probably not adapted to that maybe as effectively as as he could have done. But then I just sort of think, well, you've got such a talented player here. Surely, you you know, you're a good coach. Get it right, you know, work with him. Get it right. Is it not a huge coaching limitation that we can have a player as talented as Alexander-Arnold and actually just basically conclude... 
we can't get anything out of him. All the more reason to, if you were going to take him to the Euros, you would pick him now to work with him to to try and iron out some of that of that more tactical stuff. And it, it's true that he hasn't played especially well for England since he since he's come into the team since he made his debut just before the 2018 World Cup. But he's not old. You know, there's there's plenty of time left to work with him to get the best out of him. That's basically why, like you, I, I find it so so hard to get my head around. And who's in goal? Uh, I, I think I'm the only. He's injured at the moment. I think I'm the only Jordan Pickford fan left in the country. I think he's. Really, I think he's good. <laughs> I think you're joined by Gareth Southgate on that because he's he's the ultimate loyalist to Jordan Pickford. And with Southgate, a lot there's this seems to be this debate raging about form versus reputation. I wonder if it's just trust more in Southgate's mind. He really trusts Jordan Pickford. He really trusts Kieran Trippier. And Adam touched upon the specific role clearly. We're not privy to Southgate's exact thinking, but given that Kieran Trippier spent months out of action because of his uh, betting-related ban, has only played a couple of matches or a few matches since returning with Atletico Madrid. However, he has been competing at the top of La Liga and in the Champions League. And it's been described to me that nobody would run through brick walls to play for England more than Kieran Trippier. So there has been a lot of loyalty built up there, similar with Pickford, similar with the centre-backs, because there's been, you know, from people I've spoken to, they do not understand why, say, Eric Dyer and maybe even Tyro Mings are in there ahead of somebody like Michael Keane. Um, ben Godfrey. Ezri, ben Godfrey, Ezri Konsa. Um, if you are picking on form. So I don't think it is a form versus um, reputation thing with Southgate. I think it's a trust. And, and that trust thing is actually quite important, Adam or, or Jack, because it gives Southgate a little bit of an out when accused of being inconsistent, which he has been in the past. You know, oh, you've got to be starting and then certain people appear in the squad who haven't been starting. Doesn't want them playing in the championship, but then a couple of championship players were like, yeah, this is early on in his reign. So actually by going back to the trust thing, then nobody could question that because you can't question someone else's trust, really, can you? I think it's always been a debate, hasn't it? Do you pick on form? Do you pick on reputation? My, my, my view is it's always going to be a hybrid model, isn't it? I think I, I always take the view there are certain players who are so talented that you pick them regardless of their form. I think that was probably the case with someone like Wayne Rooney, David Beckham, Stephen Gerrard, whatever they're doing at that moment in time, if they're fit they're in the squad. Then you have a sort of clutch of players who might be in decent form at a moment in time, might not be, might have a late run to get in the squad. Fair enough. But I, th- I think where, where it is fair enough for Southgate is in, in what's been such a, a difficult, traumatic year for everyone. I don't think it's unreasonable that he gets some people in the squad, Some, and by people, I almost actually mean them as people rather than footballers, that he he knows he can rely on, that that know the way he works, that can help build a spirit in the group. I think, you know, Jesse Lingard's probably another example of that coming back into the fold, you know, really on the basis of what, four or five good games after two years of really doing nothing. It's an extraordinary show of faith, you know, no matter how good Lingard's been over the last three or four weeks. He, he clearly has this nostalgia as well for the summer of 2018, like, like we all do, um, that, that he's playing... John Stones. John Stones, that, that he's playing up to a little bit. Um, but I don't think it's unreasonable to have a clutch of those players who have had a good experience with England because there's been so few positive experiences over the years. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that they can use that experience in a tournament going forwards. I, I have... 
um, what I'm terming sort of Southgate fatigue syndrome. And I don't think it's anything really to do with him. I think it's more to do with us always just looking for the next exciting thing that co- that comes along and the fact that England haven't really played an important game for quite a long time. So you switch off mentally a bit from it. You become a bit tired of it. But I think we do have to give him the benefit of the doubt for now. One thing I'd like to credit Southgate on, whether you agree with it or not, and I'll, I'll throw it to Jack, is that for somebody who had a sort of placid reputation, being quite soft, um, and some would say bland in, in, at points of his career, um, he seems to have had the courage of his convictions with some of these decisions. He's not afraid of a bit of controversy. Previous England managers would have called Trent Alexander-Arnold into the squad and avoided the controversy that we had on Thursday, Friday. And it he, he could have avoided that problem by just naming him and even, even if he didn't play him. He also could have picked Patrick Bamford over Ollie Watkins, who many people thought was the more likely candidate, but he went with Watkins, another who we mentioned in, in the column today because uh, Brentford and Exeter stand to benefit to the tune of quite a lot of money if Watkins plays for England. They've got in touch with players with a few weeks to go um, and, and their clubs, the likes of Leeds United over Bamford and others, um, Aston Villa, over cash and target to advise them that they may be on the list uh, they may be included so just be prepared they haven't gone through with their selections leaving quite a few players upset but that's the regime and 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 Southgate has fronted up in front of the cameras and explained it without dancing around the subject he's been pretty direct and accountable for these decisions that's fairly impressive actually I agree with you David I do think Southgate is a he's a strong he's a stronger character than I think was initially how he was perceived I think you know he showed that with the Foden and Greenwood stuff last autumn he showed that with his selections I think he's been pretty ruthless with Alexander-Arnold I think he's been pretty ruthless with Harry Winks who's played very well for England almost every game since the 2018 World Cup finds himself out of Tottenham team is now out of the England squad as well I think Adam is also right what he just said that there is a lot of Southgate fatigue like he's been in the job four and a half years frankly I feel like all the credit that he generated in the 2018 World Cup and through, which was an incredibly positive experience for everyone, I think a lot of that credit has dissipated, not because he's done anything wrong, but simply through the passage of time. And I do fear for Southgate that should England lose one game at the Euros or just not play very well in one of the group games, I think I think lots of big sections of the media will turn on him simply out of boredom, really. I think you see that a bit in this the debate about the, the formation at the moment. Though Southgate's clearly chosen to go to a back three, which I think is maybe not the best way of beating Scotland, but probably the best way of beating France if they were to get France in the last 16. And the fury and incomprehension of some of some members of the press about him playing a 3-4-3, accusing Southgate of holding England back, I think is utterly bizarre. But I think that just shows that Southgate doesn't have credit and in the bank anymore and people are looking for any stick to beat him with. And I think that, unfortunately, I think this dynamic will play out in the summer if England have one bad result. Which is partly because international football outside of the tournaments is incredibly, incredibly dull. And we haven't had a tournament. And actually, not only incredibly dull, but without any kind of jeopardy whatsoever. Less, but less, unless you want to follow the Nations League, I suppose. But you know, the qualifier, there's no jeopardy, so it's so it's dull. So what what do you talk about? And we've been three years now since the tournament. Yeah, yeah I would defend the Nations League with fans. I thought that the England's Nations League campaign, 2018 to 19, was really fun and good. England's win in Spain was really good. The finals in Porto were were, were good, even though England uh, lost that game against Holland. 
But your international football without fans, it, I mean, there's really nothing there at all. And it's uh, that's why I think we're all so desperate for a tournament to kind of re-engage us with being a national team because there hasn't really been too much to, to go on since the World Cup. The other position that we've not spoken about that I think will become important over the next 10 days is that central midfield position as well because Jordan Henderson's got an injury. We, I think it's... We're not sure when when he will be back. We don't want to go into that yet, Adam. Otherwise, that that will knacker the on the plane feature and come up. We this is a, <laughs> this this is a weekly feature. Say. We can't we can't do it. You've already brought goalkeeper into it. We can't do it. We can't do every position. Uh, more on the plane on ne- on next week's pod and on the Athletics YouTube channel. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you, Jack and Adam, for being with myself and David. And we are back here next week uh, and I'll be back on Thursday with Matt Slater for the Business of Sport podcast thanks for listening The Athletic As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.